0: This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Investor's Roundtable. This is the Investor's Roundtable number two, and uh, I'm very excited to have everybody here, not only our panelists, but everybody who's watching at home. You know, thank you for joining us today. I uh, just wanted to give everybody a quick reminder that if you want to watch every single episode of the Investor's Roundtable, please go to the SNN Network YouTube channel. It's youtube.com forward slash, I think it's forward slash, backslash, I always get that wrong, but forward or backslash. S N N Wire, And uh, I'll actually be putting up a playlist for the, the show uh, after the second episode. I wanted to make sure there was more than one episode before you have a playlist. A playlist with one episode? It makes no sense. Anyways, if you want to follow for updates on social media, go on my Twitter. Uh, you can follow me there at Bobby K. Craft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. Now, let's get to today's show. Uh, joining us for this episode of the Investors Roundtable, a few new faces, a few returning faces. Start with Stephen Keel from Willow Oak Asset Management. Everybody, give a, a what up so everyone knows. Uh, just a high, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, we got Dean Trattier. He is a full-time microcap investor, uh, also contributor to the Microcap Club. Uh, Garvin J. Bush, thank you, sir. We got Garvin J. Bush from Green Alpha Advisors. Uh, we also, Thanks. what's up, Garvin? And then uh, returning, we got Kelvin Sito from At Sling Shot Cap. Slingshot Capital, and Kevin Shea, also full-time microcap investor, microcap club contributor. Gentlemen, thank you guys for joining me today.
1: Our it pleasure. is a pleasure. Thanks, Bobby. Fun to be here.
0: Awesome. Thank you, guys. All right. So, uh, you know, the, in the first episode, we did kind of like, it was our first one, you know, we were getting our getting our feet under us. You know, we were kind of talking about markets in general and the weirdness of everything and how it's going on. But, you know, with with new uh, entrants for our, our panel discussion today, I thought we kind of also just touch on it a little bit and and just kind of go from there. So um, really looking to understand your thoughts on kind of this first half. You know, we're recording this on July second. Um, so your first half of 2020, and then maybe a couple thoughts on moving forward. So with that, you know, let's, Stephen, let's start with you. Uh,
2: yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks thanks for having me, Bobby. It's good to be on with all of you and. Uh, i mean maybe the word historic uh for the first half is even an understatement you know, where you had uh, such an amazing q1 uh in the us markets at least and then almost the exact uh, reverse of that in q2 and uh you know for from my perspective uh being more cautious uh the market's overall the way the economy has been and all of the uncertainty uh going forward it's really amazing that uh, whether the Fed actions or some of the Treasury, and I don't want to get too too macro on, on all of this, um, but it's really amazing that all of those um, stimulus uh, has been able to prop up the stock market. It'll be interesting to see how it goes with Q3, you know, coming into the election, and um, clearly uh, the administration would want the economy to be in as, as good hands as possible, and then we have a resurgence of, of uh, COVID cases coming. So, uh, you know, the uncertainty here is... Uh, clear. There's always some sort of uncertainty. Uh, it's whether it's uh, obvious or not, uh, whether it's behind the scenes or not, it's obvious right now. And uh, even with that, it's been amazing how the markets have held up. Uh, and it's also been equally amazing if, if you're in the small cap value space, how how they've not. So, um, you know, you get, get a, a deviation in the markets there and it's uh, it's time to be a, a, a stock picker, but probably not a fundamental stock picker. Now's not your time.
0: For sure. I mean, Garvin, are you feeling just as uncertain as Steven right now with everything going on? I mean, what, what do you think?
1: You know, I keyed on a couple of Steven's comments. I, I mean, uncertainty is definitely the the word. It, it's funny every time I see that in a, in a, or I'm watching Bloomberg TV or read it in the press. I, I, and everybody says, you know, it's an unprecedented time. I want to see like say like, all right, we know, right? Let's let's try to g- dig underneath that a little bit. So that's what I appreciated about your comments, Steven. There's a little bit more. Context there, you know. First of all, I do think it's a stock pickers market now, and it and it is because of this. You know, the backstop the, the Fed has given to uh, the investment grade uh, names in this in this country has been remarkable, and it's given investors confidence to keep buying those names, even though what you're seeing with the economy is a little less secure. Stephen, again, I think you're right. Investing is always uncertain. It's always about trying to make your your best uh, model and projection about how the medium and and long-term future is going to unfold in terms of what's going to grow economically. And so the uncertainty is always there, but now it's just obvious to everyone how uncertain it is. So you're here again, I'm in agreement with you. Um, Where we may differ a little bit is that I think fundamentals are going to be more important. And uh, the primary reason I think that is because in your major index constituents. And I will pick on the ex- SPX here a little bit, mostly with the investment grade being backed by the Fed. You've, you've seen those companies do quite well, although the NASDAQ is the runaway leader right now so far this year. Uh, and so what you have are these almost historically high valuations in SPX. Uh, you know, S&P 500 is in about its top decile, about the top 10% of its historical average PE. And yet the economy might be in its bottom decile for growth over the recent decades. And these things seem to be a disconnect. And I think that, and Bobby, you know that, that, uh, that uh, picking on, on just sort of blind index investing is one of, is one of my favorite uh, topics. And I think that that that's a big reason why so much money just flows into those 500 names. And it really kind of doesn't matter what their fundamentals are like, and, and for them to keep getting those flows and their share price getting supported. And so Uh, it's not clear to me that their business results are going to justify the share price. And so I think stock pickers will benefit as that starts to shake out. And we see, well, what if we do, especially in micro cap land, which is where you guys live? I'm an all cap manager, so I I am in micro caps, but not exclusively. Uh, uh, What happens if we look for, well, what does have a little bit better valuation uh, relative to its ability to grow, relative to how the macro picture is going to unfold? So there's some interesting topics there. The fundamentals, yes, Stephen, as you point out, but also a little bit of a macro view. Uh, What's likely to have the ability to grow a little bit faster into the recovery? Is most of the G20, not the US, but the other 19, putting in place for uh, sustainable recovery from the current crisis? Uh, Does that provide some macro context for some things that are likely to grab some market share coming out of the crisis? Maybe it does, right? So I think if you look for an intersection, of decent uh, valuation fundamentals in connection with some of the macro picture, you might have a shot at picking some some strong winners coming out of the crisis, so yes, uncertain, but nevertheless, it gives us a few clues about where we might want to look
0: anybody want to uh, respond to that, Steve?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we can we can just keep patting each other on the back as how much we agree with each other. But, uh, <laughs> we need to do that. But you know, when you think about some specific names, and you know, one that pops uh, has popped into my radar, and I owned it a, a year or so ago. C Limited, uh, Kelvin might be familiar with it out in Singapore. There, that uh, I do not do not own it now to my detriment. You know, it's gone up more than a hundred percent. I saw it was pushing one hundred seventeen dollars a share. Uh, not a not a microcap or small cap company by any means. There. Um, but certainly this this uh, lockdown period has uh, shown, uh, has provided benefits to the company, um, you know, and, and uh, more people at home, more, more, um, more of a transition into uh, online gaming and that type of thing. Um, you know, fundamentals there, what does it mean? I mean? You know, as a value investor, you're not going to pay that kind of multiple, but uh, I'm not sure what the definition of value investing is even more anymore. Uh, on, on that perspective, because certainly the long-term growth potential of a company like that is, is amazing, and you'd love to be able to own a company like that if you're comfortable with the, um, you know, the geopolitical aspect of it. Um, and you know, you see that in the U.S. too with a, a number of companies that uh, uh, they're just you know, there's they, they they can they gain market share, can they um, benefit uh, from transitions, you know, uh, and, and whether it's uh, the business model itself. Um, or whether it's, um, you know, access to cheap funding that uh, at their cost of capital has declined and it's unlikely to increase for the foreseeable future for some of these companies. And, you know, oftentimes it's the larger companies that have been able uh, to to take advantage of that and, and uh, push out, um, you know, uh, dominate some of the smaller competitors.
3: Yeah, actually, I just would like to build on what uh, Stephen and Gavin have said. I think... Um, if you look at the stock market, there has never been a day where sunshine, you know, shining on you and telling you that this is a perfect time to invest, right? I think there's never been a period like that. Even when the economy was doing well, there will always be uh, worries around. So I think um, I do agree with Stephen, it's really an unusual time. And I think that um, it's kind of strange, um, but you know, I'm not a really a micro guy, but what I really do see uh, certain things uh, that's happening is that you know it's going to be an even more important time for management to demonstrate themselves, you know, really win and establish themselves even more apparently because you know I do believe that market pays a premium where the management executes like clockwork, and I think this is not like peacetime where you know things are expanding really well, but you know in a way it's kind of like a like the CEOs have to go into the wartime mode whereby things are you know, just shifting so quickly, workflows are going to be changed. The matters where you reach out to the customers will be changed. And, you know, some CEOs, they do perform really well when the economy is doing well. But when it goes, when we plunge into a situation where there's a lot of uncertainty, can they perform, right? And I think this is going to be an important time whereby if they are able to perform, it shows you that they are really um, the kind of management that you want to partner with, that you think that, you know, even in good times and bad times, you know, I I mean, you know, when you talk about management, uh, 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 qualities right I, I would say that you know it's only during the bad times whereby their qualities do really shine through that you really get to understand more about them so and I also think that um, you know we're going to place more emphasis on companies that will thrive not just you know in recession but also in a situation like COVID so uh, COVID-19 so I think really investors are going to recognize that and I think it's actually an important time to see how things are going to move like for example is this CEO going to just fire a lot of the employees, or are they going to retain them? How are they doing capital raising in an intelligent way? So this is actually a fantastic opportunity for this management to showcase, um, you know, their navigation skills in, in managing people, and also on their balance sheet as well.
4: You can you know, I, I can I add to that, Bobby? Uh, yeah, please. Kelvin, I think the, uh, Kelvin's right on the money. I think that, and I, again, this reflects back on the same topics that we had last session exactly the same thing started off exactly the same way with we're in a certain we're in a certain period of uncertainty so um it's it's obviously that that uncertainty is is broadly is broadly um kept by by anybody who's in the game um having said that the thing that's interesting to me is that Kalvin was just making note of it um how does the ceo react to those uncertainties whether they're micro or macro or whether they are uh, existential to his business, or within his business, or whatever, <clears throat> and that's going to be kind of an interesting situation. I know that people were saying that um, it's going to be an interesting outflow of this. There are companies that are there are companies that will go under, you know, for certain because they just can't handle the, the uncertainty. They have no plans for the uncertainty. They can't change their strategy, or they can change the strategy based upon what uh, what they're feeling, what they're seeing, and what they're hearing from from their advisors and the like. But well, that's really quite interesting because, you know, in the microcap space, <coughs> management certainly is far more uh, um, questionable than it might be at a, at a large cap or a mid-cap mid or whatever it is where, you know, you're, you're dealing with uh, the Fortune 50s or the Fortune 500s or whatever. It, so I think that's a very, very interesting issue about not just just talking about uncertainty, but how others who we rely upon as investors will react to uncertainty. And that, I don't even know whether or not we can get into. You well, know, it's, it's a good
0: question. question. Try,
4: though. Yeah, I mean, for Kevin,
0: <laughs> sorry, for Kevin
2: and Dean, both of you, you guys that are following those types of companies, have, have any companies stood out and CEOs uh, that really made effective capital allocation decisions? Now you're recognizing that they are talented capital allocators because of this time of stress, that maybe in, in, you know, in, in normal times, uh, they didn't, did not have the ability to prove themselves. If, you come across any that have stood out for you? Good question. Um, I think so. Dean I mean,
4: yeah, go ahead. Dean.
5: Thanks, Kevin. Uh, so f- first I will add that uh, the first half of this year has been the longest 18 months in my investing <laughs> journey. Um, so definitely an opportunity to learn lots. I think particularly in the microcap space, you've had a perfect storm or a scenario for, for, Whether it's just the CEO or the entire executive team to demonstrate their ability to be nimble. And so they've had to turn on a dime as far as uh, getting into the weeds operationally, as well as now, you know, with whether it's the actual bottom or the short term bottom and business activity in, pivot and go back to the capital allocation. And so, you know, you've seen some examples with some hindsight and it's only been a, sh- a short amount of hindsight. We, we don't really know till the, till the dust has completely settled on this, maybe towards the end of the year, or maybe that's next year. But you've seen some companies go um, and pivot very, very short, like in a very short, like we're talking weeks here, if not less. Um, so, you know, like so I'll, I'll name a company that I own some shares in, in Sangoma Technologies You know they immediately pivoted to getting like everyone getting work from home but as well as supporting their businesses which have on-premise and in the cloud uh, unified communication solutions uh as well now they're you know potentially you know there might be an acquisition in the near term or maybe by the end of the year but going from you know the ceo was really focused on making one kind of critical acquisition a year, integrating it, and each year the acquisition size and scope got more and more complex as it needed to, to become more and more material to the business. Um, And so he pivoted immediately, or he's employed the right people to pivot immediately, and they've done well um, through this so far. And so it just reinforces, especially when you're very concentrated like myself, it just reinforces that bet on the jockey. And you know, I don't have any comments on the market or the indexes. Uh, I look at my companies as a bunch of businesses and I think any minute that I speculate on whether Microsoft is overvalued as a minute, I could be looking at another business. So look, man, I got limited time. I got two kids and I'm a busy guy. I like to hit the gym. So I just like to kind of stay in my own little my own very narrow lane and uh, focus there. So, uh, and I'm as far as bringing anything from the indexes and everything like that. That's that's just not in my wheelhouse. And I I understand there's a lot propping up those uh, those names. And there's a in the short term momentum will win, right? And that's just really it. It'll go until it doesn't go anymore.
4: You know, you in, are you in contact with some of these CEOs? And are you getting insights from them with regard to How they're um, managing and how they're reorganizing—not reorganizing, bad word. How how they might be shifting strategy or something of that type that's notable.
5: Yeah, like I try and so as you know, as you when you're first researching a company, you kind of want to you know want to get some idea of valuation. What are some of the KPIs of the business? And then as I get more and more concentrated, and I and I speak to the management teams, I I ask like quite quite uh, specific examples. Like, tell me a time in the last six months. That you know you made, maybe it'll be a year. You made a misstep in operations, or you did something you wish you could have done differently. And so, so to answer your question, some of them have very specific examples during the COVID lockdowns that you can you can see. And then some of them, it's just you can see it as they've managed to not lay anyone. You know, they won't lay anyone off because that's their MO. Um, uh, and I think of uh, we all like you know all of us guys have, Microcap guys like uh, Ryan Pape with Expel, you know, I'm a shareholder there. On the conference call, he's like, we built the all-star team. I'm not going to lose them for this. This is short term. This is, you know, and in three and five years, we'll be selling more, you know, pain protection, uh, uh, window tint, whatever. And, you know, you got to like a guy like that. It makes you a little bit more comfortable, especially, again, when you're concentrated and this is how you pay your bills.
4: Have you seen people, you talk about capital allocation, but what about capital acquisition? I mean, a lot of companies realizing that their balance sheets have to sustain this period of uncertainty. And we don't know how long that period is going to be, but yeah. certainly, certainly seems that everybody knows that they need more money. Yeah. Uh, they may be doing some cost controls. Uh, again, they, and if they, if they screw up on any capital allocation, that could be the death of the company. Um so uh, d- have you seen have you seen the the any any efforts or any concerted efforts or uh, any consistent uh, views that uh, suggest that capital acquisition uh, might be something that is at the heart of um, early strategy
5: planning? I've just seen uh, like you said sort of the early start you've seen some of the cost reduction measures as in you know the board of directors will take no pay for the year, the CEO will cut their compensation for the year they'll maybe, collectively all furlough or do the equivalent of a furlough of a week or two salary so i've seen that i haven't seen a ton of acquisitions i think to some some of these small companies a lot of their their acquisitions uh their targets are private and they don't they're not subject to the gyrations in the stock market so uh as long as that that private entity can survive they're not going to put themselves up for sale in the middle of a pandemic like why would you and so i i I was, if you had asked me that question or something similar sort of the end of last year and say, you know, everything's going to get cut in half and you've got the cash on the balance sheet, I hope you do something with it. The reality is I don't think they can pull the trigger that quickly, or at least the companies that I'm following. I don't know if you have any other, if you have. Yeah, I wasn't really mentioning,
4: I really, I really wasn't going toward um, corporate or company acquisition. I was looking at capital acquisition or... Well, you know, going into the markets to see if they could find some extended like line of credits?
0: I mean, one hot topic has been PPP loans. Yeah, you yeah, know, that, that's that been, that's something that we could discuss real quick. I mean, very curious to what, you know, some, I mean, there, there was a lot of companies, larger cap for sure, that were getting a lot of heat for uh, taking PPP loans. I mean, we know some of those names, um, you know, but we haven't really talked too much about it in terms of the small micro nano cap land, you know, because it, it almost seems like they kind of, it was, okay, these are smaller businesses. They might really, really need this. And at the end of the day, it is a loan, so they can't pay it back. But still, it, th- I feel like these, these small micro nano caps weren't getting as much of the, I guess, quote unquote, heat about taking a PPP than, you know, the Shake Shacks. And I'm not a shareholder of Shake Shack, but I did have a burger the other day, you know? But, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> they weren't getting, these guys aren't getting the same kind of heat that, that the Shake Shacks, are mm-hmm. Anybody have a comment on so, that? Uh,
2: think twice about getting a burger there because they accepted a PPP loan.
0: Hell no. (laughs) And it was delicious. And it's down the street from In-N-Out. but We're sick of In-N-Out. That's why.
2: Yeah. You know, and I think it's all about the access to the capital markets, right? So the larger companies certainly uh, don't seem to be having a problem uh, with bond issuances, with uh, extending and and increasing their lines of credit. Interest rates are low. Fed is buying uh, or you know, in some cases have announced, but in some cases have actually bought uh, bonds on the open market, three TFS and others. And so, you know, that's that's exactly it. When you're talking about uh, some of the smaller companies, whether it's you know sub 100 million dollar market cap or something like that, micro caps, um, you know, they, you, you just don't have as much access. You know, I, I'm the chairman of a small public company. I mean, I have to personally guarantee loans uh, because of our asset size, and and that. Is the case with some some of those very small uh, companies that are still SEC reporting and so it's a a vastly different situation than um, you know of course a Microsoft and and others Um, but you know you you wonder uh, it depends on the the company the industry itself Uh, you know Dean as you mentioned expel um, look I mean business I haven't followed it uh, recently but I I imagine business has been hit uh, uh, pretty hard and you know, as as strong as a company they are, strong balance sheet, and they uh, uh, effective capital allocator at the helm. Um, at some point, it does. You know, you do have to make a, a financial decision as to to whether these uh, excess employees can can stay on, uh, what what duration they can stay on. And at least the PPP loan gave them a little extra there. Um, and and maybe there's some furloughs and others, or or things where some of the lower level employees can you know uh, get some assistance uh, with with the uh, additional uh, resources for unemployment. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting when uh, we look forward to a couple months from now, two, three, six months from now, whether these benefits get extended at that point. Uh, what uh, if there's another stimulus check coming our way? That's an, that's another uh, thing from the last few days. Whether those stimulus checks make their way into Robin Hood accounts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you know, some of those some of those small companies where the demand is just not coming back and may not come back until next year. Uh, that that's going to be tough for them, and you know at least they had
0: some some sort of bridge, I suppose. Garvin, what do you think about this?
1: You know, we have seen uh, a handful of the companies uh, we hold raise some capital and shore with the balance sheet, and in some cases, you know, they're they're uh, they are early stage anyway. Obviously, they're public, so not you know startup stage, but but uh, in the stage before they have a lot of revenues anyway. So we have seen. Some capital raises, uh, both via debt and uh, issuance of more equity, and uh, I've I've been uh, pleased to see that in most cases. Because anybody with with a good long term story with yes, a great capital allocator uh, running the show, uh, you you want to see them endure and thrive, and you want to see them uh, to the extent that they can afford to uh, not doing a ton of furloughing and riffing of their as I forget who mentioned it, they're hard acquired top talent. So to the extent that they can weather the storm without having to do that, we we definitely want to see that, particularly in the very innovative spaces where we try to keep investing. So uh, in, in particular, we've seen it in a handful of our biotechs and in a com- couple of our uh, smart digitally connected infrastructure companies, we have seen some raises going on. And uh, you know, I'm a little bit agnostic as to whether the company does it via equity or debt. I, you know, it, we're in such an obviously great interest rate environment that if you can get debt on favorable terms, that's probably an outstanding way to do it. Uh, if, on the other hand, you're worried about your coverage ratio and your runway and your ability to, to thrive for a while, uh, you might want to issue some equity. And if I don't feel like it's diluting me that much, and I still believe in the long-term story and the fundamentals and, and the macro picture... Uh, that's not going to scare me uh, that much. And, and if the market worries a little bit about it and the and the shares take a dip, well, I might accumulate a little, little bit more on that news, right? So I, I think shoring up the balance sheet right now is key. Uh, I think that allocating your capital right is key. Uh, Bobby, you know, another one of the things, this isn't so much a thing in microcap land, but another one of the things I, I don't love that much is, is companies that just frivolously do buybacks. Uh, I think going back to one of Kelvin's points from earlier is that uh, that is a that's a clear indicator of the quality of the management team and it, and it also uh, goes to well are you are you just frivolously burning your capital uh trying to trying to juice your share price or are you more interested in keeping your employees are you more interested in growing your business over the long run do you want to do r d uh depending on what kind of an innovative f- firm you are or or maybe not so much Uh, Do you want to increase your production capacity so you can gain market share going forward as we emerge? Uh, These are the things I'm interested in. I I want to see, yep, strong balance sheets, but then yes, very wise uh, allocation of that capital once you've got the tough balance sheet. So, uh, So it all comes back to management quality and a fantastic proxy for that is what is their priority stack when it comes to allocating capital?
3: Hey, guys, you know, I just wanted to go, you know, I just want to share, you know, there's this small cap company that I, I'm actually invested in. It's called uh, IntelliCheck. So it's a small cap. And I think, um, you know, recently they have taken some loans, uh, you know, the same kind of loans that uh, the Check was getting anyway, right? And, you know, they were being, uh, you know, on, on Twitter, I think there are people who actually said that this company shouldn't be taking loan here and there. But, you know, sometimes as a, as a shareholder, I'll, I'll just be on the contrary side, right? To say that hey, you know, whether, I would even go as far to say that even if Sheikh doesn't return the loans, I think they're actually doing right by uh, the shareholders because sometimes I think about this is that you, you, you a management have to be proactive and and I think when there's, you know, cash along the way that's given for free, you know, by the government, in, if you do meet certain requirements, right, the loans is effectively given for you and free and I think they should just get out there and just get the loans but I just want to get the thoughts on that. Like, do you guys see a, a conflict, let's say, you know, should they get a cash and if they get a cash, is that right? Is that wrong? Why are some thoughts on, around on it? Like, oh, yeah,
2: I mean, I think the the big question there is if it's a Shake Shack, you know, and they have access to the debt markets, um, and in fact, those loans would would be forgiven uh, because if they use them for payroll, they, they would be forgiven that, you know, the argument was was that, it would prevent more needy uh, smaller companies uh non-public companies uh from you know the program would get fully you know it would go beyond its funding level now i think that's been extended uh so far um and there's still availability from my understanding in in the loan program so just because one company gets it doesn't mean another company's not at this point you know but when all of this came up a few months ago that was not clear and it is you, certainly it is on if if it was capped and uh shake shack was crowding out uh, a smaller mom and pop company from getting uh, some loan that would be forgivable then you know that would be an issue but look all of this it's it's just like everything else like it is all very superficial at this point this is pr this is marketing um you know no one is now that it's clear that there is enough funding available uh it it's uh, it's just a pr issue and you've seen this with hedge funds you know, initially some hedge funds or other investment management companies had applied for these loans, some of them gave it back. And now that the latest iteration of the rule is these types of companies are not allowed to uh, get access to those loans. Um, and, and so, you know, think about a year or two or three years from now, when they start auditing these programs like they will, just like they did after the, the financial crisis. Um, you don't want to be the company that uh, has the bad PR. When especially when you're a customer-facing type of company like a, a Shake Shack or other, um, and we saw this with like Ritholtz Capital or you know Ritholtz uh, uh, Capital Asset Management, whatever the name is, um, they recently paid back their loan as well, and they they really caught a lot of flack for it, um, for taking it in the first place. And you know, quite frankly, none of no one on Twitter that was attacking them knows their their financial situation, <laughs> so uh, it's difficult to say whether it was legitimate or not.
0: Well just to play a little devil's advocate, you know, cuz to a degree Stephen you, you know you're right. Look, if these companies qualify for the PPP, you know, they they went through and did all the paperwork and you know they weren't pushing out any kind of mom and pops from them getting the money. You know, let's take it a step further though and and say, well, okay, there's the clear PR issue here, you know, especially for a customer-facing company like a Shake Shack, but then let's think about the other side. Well, like what does that tell you about the business? You know, does that Does that indicate something to you where like, all right, well, is this person running the ship a good allocator or not? You know, like they had, like, I I think we can all agree when we're looking at companies potentially for an investment, you want to have somebody who's running the ship that at least is, you know, saving for that rainy day, or at least knows that if all went to hell, you know, like it did for, for six to 12 or even 18 months, you know, do they have what they need in the coffers to keep things going, or at least have a plan. You know, what do you guys think about that?
4: I just jump in, Bobby. It's, it's it's kind of a conundrum, I guess. Um, I'll go back th- three months when the uncertainty levels were ridiculously high, and I don't know whether or not anybody had any clear capacity for being able to understand where they're going because it was it's, it was crazy. Um, to, to some extent. Wouldn't it be smart for a CEO to quote unquote take the free money and pay it back if necessary? I mean, agreed. I mean, I don't. I don't you know, it was mentioned earlier that uh, that Stephen was saying that um, I don't know the name of the company, but they paid it back. Um, to me, that seems to be almost reasonable. We didn't know that we didn't know where we were going. We took the money. We we now more comfortable with understanding where the direction is going. So, his money back. Okay. I might consider that to be a smart move on the, on the side of a CEO. Again, you know, are you stealing money from somebody else? You know, that could be the downside where, you know, you get, you get kicked because in in, in Twitter or whatever it is, somebody just has a thing out for you. So that's really quite interesting. I just, I almost can't put myself in a position to say one is better than another or one is worse than another. I just, so I'm sitting on the fence.
5: I think like I was, you know, you, we used to criticize management teams for having too much cash. And then now we're celebrating them for having so much cash. So I guess it's a fine line. Like, you know, you can backtest all the different economic slowdowns, but I, I, so, you know, I've only been on doing this investing thing for through a few cycles. I've seen a couple of little mini, um, blips in in downturns and then a couple of little mini euphoria and sort of one corner of the market but like i don't think our system and our businesses are designed to go from 100 miles an hour to zero in a few weeks so for them you know there's there's the, the strong balance sheet and in more normal and and gradual declining uh scenarios and recessions and then there's there's whatever we're going through or just went through and I think it's hard and it's easy to kind of sit back and say, you know, Stephen, your company should have had five million sitting there doing nothing. But at the same time, we probably would be like, Stephen, you know, if this was December 2019, like, get out there and spend the money. Like, what are you doing here? This is this is a drag on. And we would criticize that same. So I think, I think it's a fine line. I don't know any business that's really designed to go through a pandemic other than some of these work from home names. Um, that had you, I don't know, had you seen this sort of in, in January coming uh, and being a global thing because the, the, I'm certainly no epidemiologist, the previous scares, if you will, with, with, the uh, pandemics were much, much more isolated. So that's just my, I don't, I don't know if that added any value other than just hearing my myself speak for a minute there. <laughs> <laughs> um.
0: Anybody else on on this on this thought?
3: Um. Yeah. You know. I just think about this moment. Like we started off, like talking about the management quality of the management and their behavior during this uncertain time, and you know how would they, uh, you know what would actions like, you know, when we talk about the loans as well. So I just want to like get everyone's um take on this, right? Like, um, like typically, let's say when you go out there, you know, you you call a management. And of course, I do think that the questions we ask today uh, will be very different, you know, if if not for the COVID nineteen period. So, just wondering if you guys would, uh, you know, what, what are some typical, typical questions that you would ask um, CEOs, uh, or, or or you know, what are some questions that you've asked CEOs recently? I'll turn that turn that around slightly. That it's you know, some no matter
2: what question you ask. Uh, the answers that they give, uh, when they say, I don't know today, I uh, appreciate that greatly. And if they're overconfident and they seem to, um, you know, have a lot of certainty in their answers, uh, it would make me significantly more suspicious than in the past. Uh, you know, I think those of us who uh, appreciate intellectual honesty and that type of thing in the managers, in the... Managers, uh, in the, the CEOs and other leadership that we talk to and fellow investors, you know, we've always appreciated the, I don't know answer and you don't get that, you know, very often. Uh, and it's a time to appreciate that answer, you know, even, even more now, uh, no matter what industry, no matter what company, (laughs) you know, uh, along the line, even for, for managers ourselves and other, you know, investors, uh, I, and I hope some long-term uh, Takeaway from all this from people is they'll feel more comfortable saying I don't know because these black swan style things uh, are are a lot more common than what they appear to be in the past.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think that's valid. We're, again, we're, we're talking about to some extent predicting the future. Now, I don't mean in a clairvoyant kind of way, but in a assimilating everything we know about what the economy is doing right now and trying to project, you know, twelve, eighteen, whatever. Uh, months forward and, and figure out what may or, or may not uh, work, right? So I appreciate it if, if a management team is willing to say they aren't really sure. Uh, what I really like to see is some scenario planning. If this goes on for another 12 months, here's how we're going to weather it. Uh, if we emerge, here's how we're going to gain a bunch of market share as the, as the economy uh, resumes its growth. Uh, these, are, these are the things I want to see. I, I, uh, I want them to have a plan. I want them to have a very clear roadmap about how they're going to implement it in, in say two or three most likely case scenarios. I don't need them to war game out 10 scenarios. They're probably wasting time at that point. Uh, And then uh, just like how I do with my investing strategy, I I want uh, to see them conducting a a pre-mortem. Okay, here's our plan. Now, what are the obstacles that are going to prevent me from hitting that? And what can I do about those things? These are the hallmarks of smart management teams. And going back to what one of you guys said about uh, about earlier criticisms of hoarding a little bit too much cash on the balance sheet. Uh, well, I never hated that that much. I think this is a sign of adaptability and plasticity of management. It means they are thinking about scenarios and it means they don't want to get caught with their pants down in a tough situation. Uh, now that said, of course, table stakes for any kind of investing is you need to have a company that is productive and that is generating cash flow, or at least has a very clear roadmap toward generating cash flow. And absent those two things, what have you really got? Uh, nothing you want to hold for a very long time period anyway. And we are, we are buy and hold, so that's how I think. Uh, so uh, when it comes, bringing all the way back to your initial question that kicked all this off, Bobby, uh, I, I don't think the... The taking or the declining to take a PPP loan is necessarily in itself a, a good indicator of whether or not uh, a company is good at capital allocation. Uh, I think that all the points you guys made are are good on one level. Taking uh, a loan that it has a decent chance of being forgiven uh, just seems like a smart thing to do. You want to shore up the balance sheet, right? This shows again uh, plasticity. Well, but then. If the optics are going to be really bad and it's going to cost you some goodwill, well, guess what? That's a balance sheet item too. So you got to think through who you are and about your ability to raise cap elsewhere and about, uh, you know, unfortunately, you could say the optics are a distraction, uh, but that's only partly true. And you need and you and you want someone who has thought through what that's actually going to mean for the long-term ability of their business to thrive. Not everybody is as cool as you, Bobby. Some people are going to be mad and not eat at Shake Shack, right? Uh, I for one will still eat there. And I think that especially when it comes to a franchise model where there are local owners who are suffering and laying off people who flip burgers. Yeah, I don't think they should really have a problem taking that loan. Right. Um, but then, yeah, when it comes to a, a 10 billion under management hedge fund that has no problem uh, paying their, you know, 18 people that work there. Come on. Those guys got to pass. They're they're fine. So uh, I think it's case by case, but you know, that's the deal with all investing. Uh, I think everybody here is in one way or another already made the point that uh, just, just going after a blind uh, index grab isn't going to work. We've got to think a little bit more like private equity investors and take every company on its merits, except in the public markets. And, and I, think that's, I think that's the wise way forward, especially in a time of uncertainty. Who's managing the uncertainty? Who's not?
4: Kevin. You're muted. He
0: started talking. He
4: muted himself. <laughs> muted myself. I raised my hand, but I muted myself <laughs> at the same time. Sorry, I got I might I know it's two thumbs. Look at how big they are. Um and I re- restate what I obviously didn't didn't say. Um the idea of of scenario planning, it fascinates me. Um because I I do sit on the board of directors of a micro-cap company. And it's one of those things that we're always, as a board, trying to, um, um, I don't know if you want to say the word force or cajole or whatever, but get the company and management to uh, to begin to envision uh, from any number of different scenarios. I like three different scenarios myself. Um, but it's fascinating to me. I'd, I'd like to ask the group um, in their discussions with different management uh, board of directors and Upper level people, how often do they actually see uh, the outcomes of um, of these discussions? Do do companies follow? Um, uh, do they implement scenario planning activities? Um, do they do they reevaluate them every three months or whatever it is? Does it some is it something that is constantly in flux to respond to the uh, the, the uncertainties or the changes that are occurring? uh to the company et cetera. That's a fascinating uh, topic for me and um you know it's, it's it's right here. I mean I I just I just love the idea of, of of doing that but has anybody else followed through and got to management and and actually found out whether or not scenario planning is uh, something that's at the top of their heads? I was going to say Stephen you're
0: you're CEO of a public company. I mean, you know what what happens, you know, speaking to Kevin's question.
2: Yeah, and probably similar to your experience on the board, Kevin. Um, you know where you're trying to hit the right note uh, of uh, you know stress testing or what what is the bull based bear case uh, for the operations, and you know it, it's it's tricky. Uh, quite frankly, uh, it's tricky to find uh, the balance uh, depending on what type of of company specifically, you know what industry they're in and, and what how much predictability there is and. And so, you know, one thing I've always tried to do both uh, on the operational side with the public company and also as an investor is to, uh, you know, you find an area, whether it's an industry or find find a business line uh, where you can really reduce the number of outside variables and take on more risk in the sense of that you have control over. So variables that you have control over uh, because, you know, quite frankly, think, think about, um, I don't know you're an oil and gas guy you're a shipping company you know et cetera et cetera and uh these different prices are not only outside of your immediate control but it's dependent on geopolitical events it's dependent on you know weather environmental things uh pandemics etc um these macro things where where all of these variables interact in such a way that it just makes it a very difficult business to to make any predictions good and bad and when you have an industry like that, then, you know, you generally want uh, you would want as a, a stable conservative investor, less debt and a stronger balance sheet. And ironically, those are the businesses that really swing for the fences on the debt side. Um, and so, you know, it's it's tough. There are certain industries I generally avoid because of those, you know, you want to want to take on as much kind of company specific risk. I do at least want to take on as much company specific risk uh, and and uh try to minimize the uh external uh variables beyond
4: the control of management and then
2: try to you know find find good management and go from yeah there. You,
4: the um, the interesting question that you bring it all up is, is is first of all it's risk management yeah you know you're dealing with and the other the other thing you said is multiple variables which i agree with some of the variables you can control and you also previously talked about black swans which of course are those risks that are just unknown existential and. Um, you really may or may not be able to even comprehend that they might affect your business. It's a really, so is it really risk? Am I asking about risk management if I'm looking for scenario planning or how do you, how do you view it?
2: Yeah, I think so. And you know, Josh Wolf uh, from Lux Capital has a great quote that, you know, what is risk actually risk is uh, you know, what's left over when you've thought of everything else. And uh, you know, so, I mean, at our board level for our company, we do brainstorming sessions, you know, and things like that for, for, uh, which I think I'd like to see, especially at smaller companies where there's some variability in, in uh, their businesses and so much depends on sometimes the the uh, personnel involved. Um, you know when you don't have a like a brand that's uh, going to last for 50 years or has been around for that long, uh, you know I, I like that idea. I think that's a good question probably to ask uh, the management you know at the board level what what specific things do you do for risk management uh, do you um, you know where does it come from does it come from bottom-up uh, from management itself or lower-level employees or does it come top-down from the board uh, does it come through uh, some sort of brainstorming session in that way what have you identified that you're willing to share and uh, you know what are the variables that are not kind of obvious uh, as an outsider and you know to be honest too as uh, this whole experience I'm sure it has been with you too uh, Kevin uh, being on the board you, you really get a, a, a lot of uh, humility Uh, the how much goes on behind the scenes that the outside investor is just never going to know of. And um, not only with the skill set and those people involved, but also the decision-making, the uh, conversations that go on uh, with senior management and and the board. And what that's really led me to do is um, one, become a more concentrated investor, (laughs) uh, which maybe for some people would make them more diversified. For me, when I find a good management team uh, that I've, feel comfortable with been with for a long time followed for a long time i i feel more comfortable riding along with them than maybe taking a little bit out and and spreading it to an unknown um and it's really uh again just increase the maybe to an appropriate amount of humility for uh the information we actually know um
4: you you, you are so right it's it, it it's actually a bit shocking um i've been through hundreds of of one-on-ones with ceos and you know, you, you're only scratching the surface. So a bit of humility and being able to understand the emotions that are active um, throughout corporate uh, corporate enter- enterprises becomes more and more apparent. And it's the it's kind of like the the detail stuff is kind of s- almost easy to understand. It's the emotional impacts that occur and people change and things of that type that that
2: impact the barbell yeah and I think it's a barbell type thing, and this even kind of goes to this 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 planning where on the one hand I mean, Buffett has had this quote that uh you know you want to find a company that any idiot can run because at some point they <laughs> one will you know, be the one running it. that's great you know, but today, when creative destruction is just so uh much faster than in the past and the brands don't have the um you know kind of extended multi generational duration that they they used to have uh you know, on the one hand, it's difficult. It's difficult to really find and uh, uh, commit to those types of brands. But there's business models, of course, that that you can ride with. Um, and then over on the complete other side, uh, particularly with smaller companies, they're so dependent on the personalities and decision makings of uh, key individuals there. Uh, and you know, in between is probably a place that I don't would not generally want to be.
4: Anyone else want to jump in?
3: All right. Well, yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. So, sorry, come go, go. Um. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's actually a fantastic uh conversation. I've been enjoying it. Um, learning stuff as well. Um, and I just want to add one point as well. I think when it comes the COVID nineteen period, um, I think sometimes it it be, like for some CEOs, it becomes a very convenient excuse for them to. Uh, you know start diversifying, start being distracted with a lot of other things just to kind of hide the problems that are facing right now. So one of the things that I often ask them and, and I keep them accountable is that you know whatever communications and plans that they have, you know, every single call, I would always reiterate the questions that I've asked previously to see whether there are some updates on it. And I keep going back to the same questions. And I think it's important. And sometimes it may seem to be repetitive and seems to be boring. Like, hey, Calvin, do you run out of questions? Like, why do you keep asking the same questions? But you really want to see at, you know, whether do they have consistency when it comes to uh, answering your questions, right? And, you know, um, instead of having those colorful, uh, nice PRs, you know, sometimes I do feel that, you know, if the, if, if the communication tends to be more informative and boring, you know, it actually is better. And sometimes... um. Uh, it really shows that the management tends to be more focused into in into towards running the company. So, I guess being laser focused, and you know, um, you know, you, you just want to check whether the management is still, uh, you know, being very focused, and you know, not just coming out of some convenient excuses to distract themselves away uh, from the problems of the business. And I think it's a it's a recipe scope that uh, for micro cap uh, CEOs they tend to make that kind of mistake. So, just wanted to highlight that point.
0: Absolutely.
1: I mean, Kelvin, I think that's. Oh,
0: sorry, I didn't Sorry,
1: mean. Bobby. Kelvin, I think that's a great point. I love love reasking the same questions, and partially for the same reason, I do want to see consistency. I do want to see them sticking to their playbook. But the other thing I value is: are they willing to be adaptable if there's new information, if things have changed, if that answer changes, and there's a good reason for it, and they talk me through it? I love that. This this is a management team that that's thinking it through, as opposed to as I think you correctly uh, mentioned. Just going back to their talking points, I, I don't really want to hear that. I, you know, I want to, I want to hear uh, from Boss who is thinking about things in terms of first principles. Uh, what's happened uh, recently that may have changed my answer to that question? I think that that's one of the key things any analyst can do when when confronting management is is asking them the same thing you asked him last time and see what's new. I I I thought that was a great point, and you don't really ever hear it.
0: Absolutely. Hey, this is this some this is a question I had that came up in in when you're doing when you're thinking about the, your investments or you're looking at different investments and you're understanding what kind of scenarios or scenario planning that they could potentially do. You know, one word came to my mind, which was moats and and the the science of motology. You know, I, I call it a science because it really. Is I think we can all agree, you know, and the, the thing that I'm curious about here, and I'd like to open this up to everybody is, you know, in doing your due diligence, whether on names you own or names maybe that you had on a watch list or even hadn't known before, have you, have you started to, as a result of doing the scenario planning for potential investments that you're looking at, starting to see moats that maybe weren't there before, for some of these businesses that you were looking at? I open up the floor.
4: Bobby, the first question you have to ask is, there are multiple different types of moats. You know, I mean, there, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a technology moat, the, you're the only one that has it, it's a patented technology. There are time and service moats where you've been, the, you've been the leader for 100 years and you can't be pushed out of it. There are all kinds of different ways to look at it. And in fact, I'll have to go find this during, during my mute time. But um, there's a fellow um, in, in the Greylock, uh, I forget his name, who has introduced another, mo- another new moat on, on the systems of intelligence, which I've, I've been uh, very intrigued by academically. Um, he's talking about, um, I'll have to let it read it because it's a very, very interesting form- formulation that he's pulled together. But uh, <clears throat> there are moats and there are moats and there are moats and there are new moats, you know, so... Um, you know, it's kind of, it's a, okay. funny, it's a okay. funny conversation.
0: All right, well, here, okay. You know, look, hey, I'm always due for one dumb question, okay? We can all, yeah, answer, yeah, yeah. okay. So let's, so let's just chalk that up. But, but, okay, going on to maybe re-asking it, are there new motes that you've been seeing as a result of what, what's happened with the pandemic? How about that?
4: I'll pull this down for you because it's worth reading. The new modes are being created around artificial intelligence and machine learning and things of that type. Where there, where the uh, academic perspective of it is the the value is in the integration. Okay, um, it's not a standalone product. It's not something that's there. It's the it's the value the value of integrating uh, your technology with someone else's technology. For example, um, there 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 are, are um, there are places in which again I go back to this idea. It's integration. that the, the value is integration because you're so buried into the other guy's application that you can't go anywhere else okay that's that, that's kind of the easiest way to find it i'm going to go find it while I'm on mute'll well I, I'll, I'll make you the comment just
0: send it to... yeah I'm sorry Steve
4: no, no I'll just make the comment that
2: uh, in terms of kind of the study of modes of being science, I'd argue it's more kind of like politi- the way the political science might be science you know that uh, <laughs> certainly uh, you you have some uh, some concepts concepts which should be should be studied and uh, there are things we can learn from, but you know, is there a vi- verifiable process? Um, you know, as an investor in that way, and and uh, I think it's much more art in that sense. And if you think about business models, um, especially, you know, it comes to mind kind of Visa, Mastercard, American Express, you know, or you go back to the '70s and you had, uh, you know, great industry was which, which Buffett identified uh, were advertisers um advertising agencies and things like that which is, are now essentially google facebook um, and that type of thing apple um, and so you know it's, it's just it's very very difficult now because especially in the tech area because you don't know um 10 15 20 years from now uh if it's going to be the same i, I mean it's like highly likely it won't won't be the same uh, so you feel much more comfortable say investing in a, like a costco you know, there really does not really have an online presence, um, but has built up uh, kind of that customer satisfaction through the years. And they're, they'll likely be in a similar situation 10, 15, 20 years from now, uh, as opposed to investing in such as a Facebook or something like that. Uh, because, the, you know, the, the business model itself and the industry is a variation of previous industries that they've destroyed. You used to, you know, you'd say in the 70s, uh, the advertising, uh, you know, agencies and different companies like that, that, that Buffett in the sixties, that Buffett, uh, had, uh, had really liked, um, you know, they, the important aspect of that was the relationships and the people. And, uh, now, uh, obviously, you know, Facebook and, and Google and the way that they advertise is it's the algorithms and the reach, um, How's it going to be 20 years from now, you know, uh, those some of those monopolies um, and duopolies uh, get destroyed uh, kind of through a Trojan horse or through the through a, a way that can't really be predicted at that particular time because of technological change. And I think the, the state of technological change has improved and increased so fast. And it's for me, it's it'd be much more difficult to kind of, you know, make a long term investment or decision. Uh, based on the current state, I've just gotten a lot more skeptical about that, even mentioning like a Costco, you, you know, um, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't feel as good about Costco in 15 years, you know, from now, as I probably would have felt about Coca-Cola in 1962 over the next 15 years, you know, these, these moats have been, even, even if they're going to last, they've, the strength of them have been
4: decreased. Well, let me, let so, me just jump in and, and uh, reference whoever wants to read it, an article Uh, that comes out of Greylock Venture Capital up in Boston. Um, I can just tell you that the author is Jerry Chen, C-H-E-N, and it's related to why systems of intelligence are the next defensible business model. It's fascinating reading. Um, It's potentially more academic than some of us want to look at, but uh, from my perspective... Are Are
0: there pictures...
4: Uh, is that what you need, Bobby? His yes, pictures. I would like You a Playboy pictures. guy? <laughs> I, mean, oh, I only read. It. I only do it for the pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, I read you know, all is the it, a, yeah. Is there a
0: centerfold? I, that's all I wanted.
4: There, are, there. Are, let me see. There's, oh, there's a picture. Yeah, there's oh, good. Oh, picture. good. All right. A couple of pictures. Oh, there's uh, another <laughs> systems of. Oh, yeah. It's, it really has to do with being able to integrate to existing systems of record, um, and if you want to call them systems of record, which are, in fact applications or systems of operations record where you, you, you actually uh, find your way as a bosom buddy to a, to a company that's not like a Costco. It's not going to go away anytime soon. You know? But I think it's worth, that's worth reading if you're interested in moats. Definitely will. I, I don't mean to change
0: topics real quick, but I wanted to focus on a topic that because, because he's here on this panel today, I think it'd be really cool to get everybody's perspective. And that's uh, Garvin, throwing it to you on ESG Investing you know, and what's going on and your thoughts on ESG investing, especially right now, you know, so you want to kick it off and let's, and we'll kind of go from there.
1: Uh, sure. I, you know, I, I totally uh, had a comment about moats versus uh, the pace of change, <laughs> but that's okay. I, what I would. Well,
0: real quick, uh, if you want to do that. and then, All and then right, we'll I'll just do it real quick. Sure. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, I think that, uh, that there's an intersection between what Kevin and Steven were saying, you know, the, the uh, legacy moats are, Interesting. And yet change is so exponential. Are you really comfortable holding the legacy moats? I was just wrestling with this because I was looking at a water infrastructure company that is trying to start to do things like integrate the internet of things and have smart meters and help municipalities do a little bit better job managing their systems and, and connecting to smart cities. But they're way behind. They're just getting lapped by more technologically advanced companies. And yet municipalities and water utilities are really slow to change, and they're not going to bail on that vendor anytime soon. Okay, so it's not going to, like Kevin, like you were just saying, it's not going to disappear anytime soon. But Stephen, like you were just saying, we live in this time of exponential change. For my money and my client's money, I'm a lot more interested uh, in in the innovator and a lot less interested in, in the legacy moat uh, because it's gonna get disrupted. Now, is it gonna be next year or in 10 years? I don't know, but I do know that it's coming. So for what it's worth on that last point before we talk about ESG, uh, that's where I come down. I, I want the leader, I want the one that owns the IP around the most uh, uh, beneficial uh, uh, economically productive innovation and uh, I wanna hold it uh, for the long run. And if the narrative is, oh no, nobody's ever gonna bail on the, you know, and, and Stephen, in your example, the Costco, Nobody's ever going to bail on that. Well, uh, then maybe that gives me a good entry point for the new hotness to, to you know, buy the IP of the, of the thing that is going to disrupt it. The legacy moat is interesting, but you can also get caught with your pants down on it. And uh, no disrespect to the greatest investor of the last century, uh, but I think that's exactly what he did when he uh, bought Kraft Heinz. He thought... Uh, hey, here is something that hits my value screens. It's super low PE, it's super low price book. Wasn't thinking at all, uh, evidently. I, I shouldn't put myself in his shoes. Um, but he evidently wasn't thinking about, okay, but what's the growth trajectory from here? Great, it hits my value screens, but what is next? And I know his, his mentor and great teacher, Ben Graham, uh, being the ultimate value guy would have said, you, know, you just do value, you just look for the screens. Thou shall never do macro, is what he would have said. Well, that's not true anymore because exponential change. So the legacy moat, uh, yep, you can, find, you can find some stuff there, but it's just not as interesting. I mean, you got to try to scenario plan and war game out 10 years forward, right? So for what it's worth, that, that's, that's my point there. And just to dovetail it, if I can, Bobby, I think that's part of what ESG is trying to do, uh, bring some additional information to bear to help us think about how the economy is evolving. Now is it good at it? We can talk about that. <laughs> like ESG is so nebulous that there, it, there are as many ways to define it as there are growth or value or any other style of investing. And so it's a real challenge. And I think that there, is, uh, there are genuine attempts by managers to try to leverage uh, new streams of information to, to find growth and, and or value. And I think there are very, very cynical attempts to simply greenwash a strategy and take advantage of something that is uh, trendy right now and try to, try to gain some accounts. So I, I think that that's one of the problems that we're having. I'll just start it with that and, and, and then throw it back to, to the panel. Uh, I think that's one of the problems we're seeing with ESG is it doesn't mean it will. I, will, I was going to say it doesn't mean anything, but it's actually the opposite. It means whatever whoever's looking at it wants it to mean. And I, I, therefore, I, it lacks a lot of very specific, it lacks specificity. And so it's tough.
4: Garvin, I, I agree with you entirely. Um, I'm a cynic about the ESG. I can make any company, any company that you want, I can make it into an ESG company just because. It's very, very easy to do so. And actually, I, I've written on this topic uh, about how easy it is to make any company an ESG company if you're looking at it from a standpoint of investing. Okay, I'll only invest in companies that are socially inter- interactive. That means I can invest in any any COVID company I want. I don't want to do it an en- <coughs> on energy. I can invest in any solar, wind, electrical. I can even in- I can even get into gas companies.
1: Absolutely. Okay.
4: So it, it becomes it becomes cynical. Um, to, so you and I may remember, <coughs> uh, excuse me, <coughs> social investing back in the uh, late '70s and early '80s um same principles same things going on uh ben and jerry's uh was was the principal company at the time that was uh, that was leading the social investing uh, strategy and in fact i even i even knew the guy who was involved there but it seems to me it's very shocking that you, you used to use the word nebulous and i think that's absolutely dead nuts on i can turn any company that i want into an esg investment if it has to do with productizing the other side of it is are you a good socially uh active company so let me just pick something really simple i spent a lot of time management consulting at ford motor company they probably provide 50 percent of the of the local uh, uh volunteer work to uh, houses for humanity okay so if you want to invest in companies that are showing um personal interests and corporate uh um Benefits to supporting social efforts, not building products that uh, are socially beneficial. If you follow what I'm saying, um, sure. You know, I can make I can actually turn Ford Motor Company into an ESG company if I really wanted to. I mean,
1: I know ESG managers that do.
4: Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's nebulous, and I I I'm totally cynical about it. And 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 in it, fact, it's kind of funny. Is that I was engaged uh, a while ago in in creating a business model um, that ultimately ended up being turned into everything about everything. It was, it was actually completely washed out, completely diluted to the point where it meant nothing. And that's my biggest fear about ESG is, is that it very, very short, in a very, very short while, it can be so diluted by everybody jumping on the bandwagon, okay, that it becomes completely nebulous. You know, so again, I'm, I'm a cynic. I'm, I'm, I'm like, you and I might have a very interesting long conversation about this at some mm-hmm. other time.
1: You know, and uh, so I agree with a lot of what you just said. And in a way, I I think it's a shame because I think there are interesting stones to be uncovered uh, by doing outside of the box sort of analysis. Uh, Like I was saying in response to something Stephen said, I do think it's important for us to think a little bit more like private equity managers and really take each company on its merits. So ESG, some means of applying ESG criteria could help us do that. But the everything you said though about its actual application in the real world today is 100 percent right, and so I think it's hard for clients and investors, uh, especially the the non specialists whose who's, uh, you know business and life is is doing something else like whatever their career is in, in the non investment management world, uh, it makes it extremely hard for them to figure out what's going on, and it in turn makes them think yeah it's so diluted I don't even know what it is, and if I can just jump on the cynical bandwagon with you, uh, I I am a little bit amazed to see some ESG rating systems that throw companies that are just visibly deleterious to the ability of the economy to thrive over the long term uh, get good ratings. It reminds me a little bit. I'm sure everybody here has either and or read the book or seen the movie uh, Michael Lewis's story, The Big Short, about the 2008 collapse. Uh, there's a scene in there where one of the guys who took a short position uh, makes the comment that, you know, these guys that were bundling the subprime mortgages would just come into the ratings agency and tell them what rating they wanted. And if the house didn't give them the rating they wanted, they just went somewhere else. I, I kind of feel like that's what happens when you see Chevron and ExxonMobil getting very high ESG ratings. Uh, if you're thinking about first principles and you're thinking about a pre mortem, what's going to cause the economy to collapse over the long run? Uh, you know, it is, it is the burning of hydrocarbons, uh, at a huge scale, which is what those companies exist to do. So it, it, you know, if a company like that can be, uh, ESG, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, obviously you're all G and, and no E. <laughs> okay. I mean, with just, that, with that, I'll pause Let You guys weigh in. Well,
2: you, no, you actually, just, I a question back to you, Garvin, you know, talking about the, um, you know, kind of the, the the people, the infrastructure, you know, so to speak. I mean, on the allocate of the ESG community, you know, uh, how has your experience been um, with the allocators and prospective allocators? Uh, maybe I'm sure all your investors don't understand it very well, but some others out there that you might have interacted with, are they recognizing uh, this issue? What, what type of uh, are, are they, re- or are they relying on third party? Versus
1: we run into a lot of both. Uh, it, it's new enough and it's Wild West enough that a lot of folks don't know what else to do but rely on third-party uh, scoring systems. And I try to uh, make the case to them that uh, while that, that seems like a good idea, there are so many different ways to slice ESG that they may have a tough time understanding what they're getting there. And so for the moment, I mean, until there's like a, a FASB or a gap for, for what these things mean, uh, there's no shortcut. You have to think about, so I like to think more in terms of impact. And I, I encourage prospects and clients to think about what it is. To, so let's be clear, I'm an impact manager. And many of our clients do define my strategies as ESG. You know, I think, I think it's heavy emphasis on the E because I think that E involves the greatest Systemic risks with the greatest uh, potential to undermine the global economy over the long run, and therefore they're the ones we need to solve. And so, therefore, the solutions to those risks are the most likely to gain market share and help grow my clients' wealth. But I tell them that I wish there was a shortcut for you, but in the absence of a gas gap or a Fasb uh, for for what you mean by sustainability, or what you mean by impact, or what you mean by ESG, really you have to do the homework and you have to open up the strategy and look at every holding. And make sure that each of those holdings is in line with what you mean when you talk about trying to have impact. You know, I was at a conference uh, out on Nantucket a couple of years ago that was for family offices and, and high net worth folks, and they do a lot of private equity uh, investing as well as public equity investing. And you know, ESG, uh, Kevin, your you'll, your cynical side will like this, um, is is uh, diffuse enough that. Uh, A lot of these family office representatives were saying, you know, we just think you got to stick to private equity uh, because we don't think you can actually have impact with public equities. And, and, uh, you know, when it was my turn to get up, I said, you know, it isn't that you can't have impact with public equities. It's just that you usually don't. So, again, you got to open the hood and look at every holding and the strategy you're considering buying and making sure that you think that, that those holdings are in line with what you mean when you say impact. Because again, there's no standard definition. People don't love hearing that, right? Because that's that's homework. That isn't oh, awesome. The ESG score was double A. I'm going to go ahead and buy that. It's oh, I got to look, <laughs> and you know, for a non-specialist, that's a pain in the butt. The,
4: the interesting but, thing that got me into into this whole evaluation that I that I undertook was I for a good reason. I had to go out and read probably about fifty. Corporate sustainability reports, and that opened my eyes because that was that was a corporate initiative saying how wonderful we're going to be mm. in the delivery of our services. Um, yet it was also <laughs> your great word is nebulous. We're going to be wonderful. We're going to do this stuff, and we're going to just sit back and relax. It's going to be really, really good. Um, but how do you, do you find that there that the statements that are being made by these companies? Uh, about that that you find in the sustainability reports give you insight into where to look to see whether or not they actually are um engaging in some sort of esg strategy
1: sometimes but it really is a mixed bag uh i i think that some sustainability reports are well-intentioned and full of fantastic information others to be honest are straight up kabuki and you can't believe a word in them, or, or maybe that's a little bit, maybe that's going a little bit too far. But you need to to read them with a lot of cynicism. And my approach to cutting that Gordian knot is is to uh, minimize the emphasis that I put on the content in the sustainability report, and rather just look at their source of revenues. What are they getting paid to do? I think that that is a clean way to slice that knot because if you can define the majority of a company's revenues as coming from uh, a business that is doing something to lower the overall risk profile to the global economy, coming from one of our major systemic risks, one of the big system level risks, with the power to undermine everything we've built these last couple of centuries, well, then for me, that's impact. And if they're not, your, your, uh, your uh, example of Ford, is a good one, now that is a fine company with a long and proud uh, history and a lot of great tradition. And maybe on the social and governance side, they are second to none. But on the environmental side, it's a little bit tougher of a case to make because what they do is they make internal combustion engines that are one of the principal demand drivers for fossil fuels, which we know uh, is is bringing us uh, close to to facing some sort of system level collapse within the next few decades. So by by straight-up definition, that makes a terrible long-term investment. Now, to the extent that they could pivot and become more of a solution than a cause of a system-level risk, cool. But for now, they haven't really made many moves in that direction. So it comes right back to how do they get paid? Where are they earning their revenue? If it's from selling internal combustion? Well, I think it's a mistake, like a lot of investors do, to lay all the blame for climate change, for global warming, uh, at the feet of the extractors. So when you see a fund is fossil free, what they mean is you know, no extractors, no Exxon, no Chevron. Uh, I think that the demand drivers for those products are just uh, as culpable. And if you really are interested in, again, first principles, if you really are interested in diffusing that risk, uh, you, you, need to, uh, you need to avoid the, the internal combustion engine makers too, and the fossil burning utilities, and uh, a lot of, uh, of adjacent industries. So uh, I I think that rather than relying solely on an ESG report, while that may contain some interesting info, really you need to put your priority stack in the right order and start with what do they get paid to do?
4: So is that how you're defining it for your clients, how they get paid?
1: Yeah, that's my top level heuristic. You need to be deriving the majority of your revenues from solving a system level risk. After that, yes, I'm interested in your sustainability report. If you don't pass that first cut, I, I, I don't, I'm not that interested in your report, because if you're generating more risk than you're solving, it doesn't matter what's in your report.
4: So how do you take into consideration any biopharma company that's going to reduce or extend life, extend life save people, uh, you know, do, do a variety of different things that are socially valuable, uh, that They also like a lot of money. So I mean, you know, you talked about the environment as being one easy to find. I can also sit down and make an argument that that social in, involves being able to to uh, make li- make life better. However, you want to describe that. Okay. So aren't all bio farmers by definition ESG companies?
1: So this is part of what I mean when every investor has to decide for themselves what what impact means and look at every holding for themselves. We do hold biotechs. Uh, We view the inevitability of the next pandemic as well as the disease burden carried by the global population resulting from legacy economic practices, uh, such as uh, use of glyphosate, such as burning of fossil fuels, uh, as, as lowering of overall system level risk. Some of the biotechs Uh, we put in with over the last couple of years are now key responders to the COVID crisis. Now we didn't put those in there because we saw COVID coming because goodness knows we did not know the timing or severity of the current crisis uh, at all. But we did know that it was one of the most predictable eventual crises uh, to confront the economy in a long time. After SARS and MERS, uh, any epidemiologist you talk to or anybody who even really is thinking through Uh, what the likely risks to economic growth were going to be over the next couple of decades would have put, and indeed World Economic Forum did, uh, put emergence of a pandemic right on that list. Well, we're interested in solutions to system-level risk, right? So we did, and then coming back to to Stephen's uh, comments uh, about uh, exponential change. Okay, who are the IP owners of the most interesting ways to approach that particular risk? Uh, the value always rolls up to the intellectual property owner, right? So uh, who has the ability to most quickly and generatively come up with a vaccine and not even on the vaccine side, also on the therapeutic side? Uh, who are the strongest names there? Well, uh, we, we came up with a basket of those and we put them to work and, and we've had a great year of performance during this pandemic period, partially as a result of that. So there's no, no super easy uh, answer to your question. But in terms of how I define impact, it's, yeah, there are some names in the bio uh, pharma space. Now, most of them are mid caps and small caps uh, that are doing a lot to try to diffuse system level risk around uh, health crises. And I think, well, or at least they were small caps. Uh, and uh, I, I think that starting from, from a premise of, uh, I think that you're going to get great tailwinds out of looking for two things one innovation and relentless pursuit of more innovation so this is part of the reason bobby why i don't love buybacks i'd much rather see you doing r d than buying your shares um and then two the second tailwind uh who's going to solve our problems who's going to crack through the premortem of what's going to cause economic slowdown if not outright collapse and solve the things that are going to prevent us from thriving indefinitely? I think if you can find the intersection of the smarter, smartest innovators who are helping us solve for our biggest system level risks, you're onto a pretty nice portfolio. And that is how I define impact. Not every manager feels the same way.
0: All right, everybody. Uh, we're, we're getting close to the end here. So I, I'd love to get everybody's final thoughts um, on any of the topics that we just talked about and or just anything at all. You know, you could, you could read a poem. I, I could care less, you know, but uh, uh, let, let's go to Dean, uh, you know, your final thoughts.
5: I don't have uh, anything really enlightening to say, uh, Bobby. I just wanted to say thanks for having me on after listening to the other panel members speak, I'm probably bringing the average IQ down a few points. Um, If anyone does want to reach out, uh, I always plug my blog and everything like that. But yeah, this was great. Um, Let's hope the second half of the year is a little less intense than the first half. I'll, I'll settle place. for that.
0: I'll say amen to that. And real quick, Dean, where can people go find more information about you and, and your blog? I, everybody will do that too at the end. of the Sure.
5: Podcast. So, so uh, I have a, I run a blog, petty cash. It's petty cash blog as well. I'm on Twitter, uh, petty cash with two underscores in between petty and cash. Um, I'm a fairly open book when it comes to uh, my journey. I know uh, my background is not in finance. Uh, or any sort of higher education. So this is uh, kind of a build it from zero to get to my my financial independence. So I would I would have loved to have had someone to walk me through what they did uh, when I was first starting. So like I said, I'm a fairly, or I'm, a, I'm an open book when it comes to the question. So feel free to ping me. And thanks again, Bobby. Oh,
0: thank you, man.
3: All right, uh, Kelvin. Hey, Bobby. Um... Great uh, conversations. I think um it, you know, I, you know sometimes I do always feel that it's great that we have conversations like that because you know um sometimes when we talk you know, certain things connect in our head and certain things we say you know that actually makes a lot of sense. And today I think there are a lot of things that made a lot of sense. And I think um you know usually for investors you know I think one of the greatest learning points for me i think in terms of my growth over the last few years is really by speaking to investors as well so today is is one of the another session like that as well and it's always nice to be on this show right and thanks for you know organizing this as always
0: thanks, so Kelvin. you can follow
3: me uh, yeah you can follow me on my twitter that's slingshot cat um uh, you know can reach out to me and we would I, I would love to discuss any ideas as well yeah
0: absolutely stephen yeah,
3: so I have a friend, uh, Jeremy Deal from
2: JDP Capital, and, and his uh, comment about this time period is that now's the time to look for companies that not only will survive, but also will thrive. So survivors and thrivers. And I'll just blatantly steal that because I, I love that idea in this particular time uh, where you have uh, companies that are in strong, uh, strong positions, strong capital market or strong, you know, uh, are they able to take market share? Uh, are they able to make decisions that actually increase their moat however you want to define it uh going forward or give give them a a greater opportunity for long-term uh, predictable you know growth and um you know it does separate these periods of stress separate uh those uh, great companies and great decision makers and great leaders from average and and poor and so that those are the types of things we're looking for uh, i think over the next quarter or two we'll continue to be able to uh, get some insight into that and uh and separate the pretenders from the from the real deal and so uh, that's what i'm looking for from a kind of bottom-up individual uh company type basis uh would love to kind of hear any feedback and suggestions from from anyone who have a, has a particular company that they enjoy um they can they can recommend to to take a look at uh, you know from so from there I, to echo dean uh looking forward to uh, hopefully a little bit more predictability here in the next uh, quarter or two. Uh, you can find me at, uh, I, I run a fund called Arquitos uh, Capital, A-R-Q-U-I-T-O-S, uh, arquitoscapital.com. Uh, also, uh, Willow Oak Asset Management is uh, the, the asset management subsidiary of our public company, WillowOakFunds.com. And I'm on Twitter, Stephen Kiel, uh, K-I-E-L. Is the last name with an underscore in there.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, Kevin, where can people go find you? you- one of my new favorite Twitter accounts. You know, you got some new followers from last week. I don't know if you realize that.
4: I I keep my mouth shut mostly on social media um, because many many years ago I began to recognize that it's very not sociable. Uh, it's it's a lot of pissing and moaning. So um, I don't I don't do anything in, in Twitter. I'm just too much of an old fart. Um, I'm also a cynic, so you know. It's it's like when Gavin and I were having a conversation, it was nice to see kind of two cynics going at it. That was a great conversation. Um, But, you know, Bob, you you and I have spoken, and, you know, the idea of putting together a session like this, I think, is very valuable uh, because it opens up a lot lot of um, interesting conversations. And as Kelvin has said, sometimes you just don't even know where it's going to go. Okay, But I think what you're going to find out is, is that as people review this and see it, they might be getting back to you and saying, yeah, that's a great question, and I've often wanted to ask it myself. Or it stimulates more conversation. So I hope that as you get into three, four, and five uh, numbers on this thing, that uh, you start to see some you know, coalescing of interests and you know things that can that things that be played out on it. But yeah, you you might tell everybody that my my Twitter handle that um, I don't often work in is called the the Good Prick. So yeah, that's about where. And, uh, and what you don't want to do is you don't want to follow me on, a, as, um, as uh, Jason has said, is that the last thing you want to do is follow me uh, into, the, into a one-on-one after I've questioned the, the CEO. Because, for example, I asked, I asked one CEO, I said, why are you the CEO of this company? And the guy could not answer the question. And he's still running the company, and the company still sucks, but it's really <laughs> quite funny. So, yeah i think it's good bobby again you know that i'm supporting whatever you can do but I, and i thank you i don't want to be the hog on the on the well my left side of the panel so hey, good fun you're,
0: hey you're always welcome on you know how we do it but uh you know i think actually for future panel i'm going to also pose it to twitter as well and ask for for topics you know and see what you know see what what people want to know more about right now i mean uh you know uh There's some really interesting stuff out there, that's for sure. But Kevin, you know, you're always welcome. Everyone here is always welcome back. So, So, uh, Garvin, please, uh, you know, final thoughts.
1: Hey, Kelvin and Kevin both said it. It's it's all about the conversation. It's been great. I I feel like I've learned a lot and and made some connections. It's all about the connections, right? The uh, network science tells us you can't have too many nodes in your network. So this has been fantastic, Bobby. Thanks for getting us together and uh, for hosting a great conversation. Thank you, Garvin. Where can people go and follow
0: you on uh, social media and and also your website?
1: Uh, I'm personally on Twitter at Garvin1313. Believe it or not, there were enough Garvins on there that that's where I had to go. (laughs) And uh, we are at Alpha Verde as a firm. Green Alpha was taken. So I went with the Spanish on it. And then um, our website is greenalphaadvisors.com. Awesome. Well, you guys, thank you so much for joining. This was so much fun. Have a great 4th of July weekend.
0: You know, uh, either quarantine in place or going someplace safely and, you know, wear that mask and uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. All right. So take care.
1: Thanks Bobby. Thanks Bobby.
0: Thanks guys.